This morning we'll be in First Kings chapter 8. Also, if anyone needs a Bible, uh, we'll be going through a large section of Scripture this morning. If anybody needs a Bible, one of the ushers would be loved to bring one to you. If you just raise up your hand, we'll be in First Kings chapter 8. We uh, began a series last month. We'll be doing it for the next couple of months still. We're going to do four-part series. The, the first one, we're looking at prayer, looking at a mosaic of prayer. And by the way, Jeanette, she does these graphics, and they're beautiful. So uh, thank Jeanette for all the graphics we have. Um, the first one was a mother's prayer. That was Hannah. Uh, today we're going to do a king's prayer. Uh, next time, Ben will be teaching. It'll be a prophet's prayer And then finally, we're going to close with the Savior's Prayer. But today, we're going to be a King's Prayer. Uh, This message this morning, um, I hope it it, it helps you. Um, It really has been, um, in a challenging way, in a good way, it's been um, in me this week. And so I hope it's good for you as well. The New York Times uh, recently wrote an article about uh, the NBA. And the NBA has 500 of the best basketball players in the world. I didn't know there was actually about 500, but that's about what it is, about 500. 500 in the world. And the article basically says that if you're the worst player in the NBA, you can beat normal people like us. And not just normal people like us, but like somebody actually knows how to play basketball. It's no contest. Uh, There's a guy, and I didn't know this as well, maybe some of you know, from Enumclaw. His name is Brian Scalabrini. Does anybody know who he is? Well, he's from Enumclaw. He's an NBA player. He played for 11 seasons. Pastor Stephen knew him. Uh, he self-described himself as looking on TV as pudgy. Um, he, he, he only scored, well, I mean, only, three points, 3.1 points per game was his average over 11 years. Played with the Nets, the Celtics, and the Bulls. Um, he was a, if you have 500 players, he's in the bottom. He's in the cellar. But, I guess this happens after you retire, and he retired, People often meet you in the gym and they challenge you to a game. And this New York Times article says that people would do this. And one kid comes and says, hey, I bet you my shoes. You, I'll take your shoes, you take my shoes if we win. He won 11 to 0. No contest. No contest. When you enter into the presence of greatness, there's some awe, but also there's a falling. There's a sense of inferiority when you beat 11 to 0. Sometimes, relating to the Lord, sometimes, this will be our big idea this morning, you'll see it on the screen, sometimes rising to praise his name results in falling to plead for his name's sake. Sometimes when we rise to praise him, we end up falling to plead for his name's sake. That's our, our theme this morning. So, before we jump into the text and read it, um, uh, the context here is, this is a prayer of Solomon. He's the king of the time, the king of Israel. And he, as many of you know, he is the most wise king of all time. And, it, it, and the most wealthy. And his father, whose his father's name was? Father of Solomon was? David. David. All right. Saul, father of Solomon was David. And David had commissioned his son to build the temple of the Lord. The Lord, they, they had a tabernacle before, a tent. Now it was going to be, build a house in Jerusalem for his name. David couldn't do it because he was a man of war, but he, so he had commissioned his son, Solomon. And at this point in the text, in 1 Kings chapter 8, we're going to be beginning in verse 22. The, the temple has now been completed. And they brought the furnishings into the temple. They've been built. It took seven years to build this temple. And then 
at this day, this was a monumental day. This is one of those days that you just, you know, if you were there, you tell everybody about it. If you weren't there, you knew where you were when this happened. The Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple. And there, when the Ark of the Covenant, that place, what had the, 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 the tablets of stone in it, the Ten Commandments, when the, the Ark was brought in with the cherubim on top, the cloud of God's glory filled the temple. And the priests that were in there, what did they do? They had to get out. They couldn't be in anymore. It was too glorious. And so here, this had just taken place. And Solomon, the people are there. The temple is here. And he stands before all the people as king. And he turns from the people. And he lifts his hands to God in prayer. That's where we are right now. Let me read verses 22 through 26. We're going to read this as our first part. And this first part of the message will be rising to praise. And then the following part will be falling to plead. Rising to praise, verses 22 through 26, and then falling to plead. Let me read. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, which you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. We'll stop there. So here, Solomon stands before the people. He lifts his hands to praise to God. And and he praises God in a number of ways, but particularly he praises God for who he is. He says, there is no one like you. You are unique. You're incomparable. And he praises him for his character, his very being. We see this. We see these, there's no God like you in verse 23. And then as you continue on, he says, one who keeps covenant and shows steadfast love. We're going to talk about those two parts just briefly here. The first part we'll start is with shows steadfast love. Do you remember in the, in the Exodus, the nation of Israel came out of of Egypt. And then they were at Mount Sinai. And then Moses, at the time, he'd asked God, I want to see your glory. I want to know your name. And so God says, you can't see my face, you can see my back, but I'm going to, he declared his name before him. He says, I'm the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, and bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm a God abounding in steadfast love. And Solomon here is recalling what God said about his very name, who he is. He says, you are a God who has steadfast love. It never ends. It's strong. He says that. He recalls God's character. He praises it for it. And also, he praises that he keeps covenant. Now, God has made a number of covenants with his people. But the one he's referring to here is the covenant that he made with his father, David. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, it's an important place in your Bible. You want to reference it at some point. But 1 Samuel chapter 7 is the covenant with David. 
And there, uh, David had said, you know, I want to make God a house. I don't want him to be in the tabernacle. I'm going to make him a house. And God said, no, you can't make me a house. You're a man of war. We said that before. But I'm going to build you a house. And so what he meant by that is your family will sit on the throne. You'll have a kingdom from your line. As well as, though, your son, and that happens to be Solomon, will build the house. You can't do it, but your son will. So two parts here. I'm going to build you a house. You'll have a line of people on your sin, and your son will build a house. So here is the, fulf- the fulfillment of that part that the, the house has now been built. Solomon has built the temple, and he also prays, though. Look at verse 25 and verse 26. He says, Now therefore, O God, he says, Keep for your servant David what you have promised. And then in verse 26, Now therefore, O God, let your word be confirmed. So Solomon rises to praise. He praises God for his, his, his steadfast love and for his promise keeping that you're a God who does those things. And he says, and Lord, now do what you said in fulfillment of the latter half of that, that there would be a king that would remain on the throne. He, he, he asked, his argument is that God would fulfill his promises as he said. So I want to start here and ask you the question, how does this apply to our praying? We want to apply this to our praying as Solomon is praying. When we read the Bible, sometimes it's easy to apply a passage. When it says, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not steal, that isn't changed at all. If it says, honor your father and mother, honor your father and mother. But sometimes, many times, especially in the Old Testament, we must consider the time period and what has changed and what has remained the same since that time. So, for example, we do not live in Israel right now. We're not citizens of Israel. Is anybody here a citizen of Israel? No. None of us are. We are not governed by a king. Okay? Uh, and, and, and the nation of Israel, even if we were there, doesn't have a king anymore. They have a prime minister. It's a different government structure altogether. And even if we were in Israel, the temple is not there anymore. So many things have changed. But the grounds by which Solomon has prayed has not changed. Has the character of God changed? No, absolutely not. Prayer, this is the main point here, or important point, prayer built on solid ground, on the solid ground of God's character, is enduring and effective. Prayer built on the solid ground of God's enduring character is, in, is enduring and effective. All right? I love that sensation where you get onto the beach and you stand there by the shore and the, the waves come in and your feet like sink into the sand. I like that feeling. Is anybody else like that? It's kind of funny. You kind of wiggle and they goes down a little bit. That's a not a good foundation. What's not a good foundation for my prayer life is my own faithfulness to prayer. How many times I pray. That's not a good foundation for my prayer life. My eloquence in praying is not a good foundation for my prayer life. My deservedness to pray is not a good foundation for my prayer life. Prayer that's built on the solid ground of God's character is enduring and effective. God proclaimed his name to Moses. And he says, my name is associated with a steadfastness, a steadfast love that endures. That's the the prayer that Solomon is praying based on here. God made a covenant with Solomon's father, David. Solomon is saying, remember that what you promised God? That is what's a solid foundation. Recall, uh, fulfill your promises. So when we pray in 2022, 
Are we in 2022 right now? Yes, we are. <laughs> when we pray, and my memory is not a good response to how to pray. That's not a good foundation. We pray on the grounds of the king prays. We ask God to keep his word, to fulfill his promises. And when we say, let's remind God of his promises, it's not that he forgot, but it's to just say to God, remember what you did, reminding ourselves. These promises are unchanging, they're enduring and effective. Today, as you can see from right here, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a symbol of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. Jesus has made a covenant with his people that is enduring. And he marked that, he signed that covenant with his own blood. He paid for the sins of his people and he said, I'm signing it with my own blood. His blood seals this promise that his people are forgiven and accepted by God. His steadfast love does endure, and he showed it through his own death. Now, you might think, well, is it manipulation of God if we say, well, you said it, now you have to promise it. You're just trying to like bend his, you know, twist his arm a little bit? Well, no. But let me give you an example of maybe that's the case. My kids, not necessarily in this time, maybe when they were a little younger, if you would whisper in the house, let's have some ice cream later. Let's have some ice cream later. And then you also yell in the house, do your chores. They will remind you that you said, let's have some ice cream later. And they'll remind you of your promise. But they'll say, you know, I didn't hear you say that about your chores. (laughs) All right. That's a true story. Sometimes we can manipulate by promises. That's not the case with God. God wants us to remind him of his promises. He considers it faith that you would say, God, I trust you at your character, that you promise this, now fulfill it. And faith pleases God. It, it's good. It, it, he's, he's, he's blessed by our, our faith in that way. So here's an example. Do you need God to be near? Do you feel alone? You can say, Lord, remember you promised to never leave nor forsake me. Do you, when you're suffering and having a difficult time, God, remember your word says that you will work these things together for good. May it be so. God, remember that you said that when, I, when I'm fearful, when I'm, I'm fearful, that those who trust in you may, be, may find peace in you. Remind God of his promises. I need to do that often. I, I, I have a, I, I'm forgetful. I can't remember 2022. So we rise in honor and we praise our God. We praise him for his name, for his character. We praise him that he keeps his promises. This is a wonderful cause to praise. But many times, this is kind of our second point, when we enter into God's presence and then consider our own sinfulness and our own weakness and our own faithfulness, our shoulders begin to hunch and we begin to be lower and our standing turns to falling. And that's what we're going to look at next, falling to plead. Now, I want you to look at verse 54, the end of our text. Um, it says, Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he, rose, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward the heaven. Now if you look back at verse 22 and verse 54, you notice something's changed here. Solomon stood, but at the end of his prayer, he ended up kneeling. He had ended up on his knees, and he had to arise. 
I think that Solomon's posture represents what happened in his, in his prayer. He, his movement from a, a prayer of praise led to a prayer of plea when he stood before God, a prayer of supplication for help. He needed God's mercy. The nation needed God's mercy. He was asking God to condescend to come down and help. So in the next part of this text, we're going to see in verses 27 through 30, it's kind of like a a preamble to the next part of it. It's an introduction. It kind of gives the big picture. And then verses 31 through 53, there are going to be seven, I'll say it again, seven ways in which God is asked to hear in heaven. The, The phrase hear in heaven is repeated seven times in verses 31 through uh, 53, 31, seven times in those sections. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read 27 through 30, kind of the preamble to this, and then we're going to dive into those seven requests to um, hear in heaven, seven pleas. So let me read 27 through 30. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Yet regard, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant, uh, to his plea, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. We move from a place of praise to a, a, a place of plea, asking or questioning. You see those words begin to show up over and over again. And it's a plea for God to listen and to forgive. To listen from heaven, to condescend, to come down, and to forgive the need of the people, and that's their sin. Um, there in this prayer, there's an acknowledgement of God's greatness. He says that heaven and the heavens of heavens can't contain you. So that's the, the sky and then the eternal realm. It, there's no way that even that can contain God. He's beyond time and space. And so that's a plea here for God to listen and come down. And so the temple has been built, this place where God would put him would say that God, this can't contain you. But Solomon in verse 29, he asked that at least, God, let your eyes maybe upon this place night and day. So you, heaven, this building can't continue. Heavens, heaven can't continue. But your eyes may be upon this place. And your name shall be there. That your, your very character, your, your reputation will be upon this place here, your name. He asked that would take place. And he says, listen from heaven, your dwelling place. God, we see here, is, he's, he's other. He's beyond us. We're fallen, and we can only plead based on his name, based on the fact that he is merciful and gracious in his steadfast love. That's the way that Psalm can make this plea for forgiveness, that God would come down. Now, I want to show you, there's going to be seven pleas here. And because they're extensive, I'm going to summarize the first six, and then we're going to read the seventh, which really gives the heart behind them. But there's some context we've got to understand here. Um, we talked about this, the covenant that was made with um, David, but there was also a covenant made at Mount Sinai, right? 
the, the covenant was made between God and Israel. And there, uh, this covenant was made that if you keep this law, you will be my people. And there were blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy chapter 28 talks about these blessings and cursings. Now, in that case, what we're going to see here is these pleas that Psalm makes relate to the problems that occur when the people sin and face the consequences, the curses that come through disobedience. Both in this case, though, and in the case of the, the, the covenant with uh, at Sinai, there's this promise underlining it, because of God's gracious and merciful character, there will be a exile, meaning the people will sin and go, and then God will bring them out in Exodus, like a second Exodus um, for the people. So there's this promise, this hope that's in the midst of it. So let me look, let's look at the seven pleas, and then we'll dive in. So in verses 31 through 33, you see in verse 32 it says, Hear in heaven. And when to hear in heaven? When one man or one woman sins against his neighbor. God, hear in heaven and bring justice. Uh, right what is wrong and reward the righteous and judge the guilty. God, hear in heaven when this sin takes place. Notice there's going to be lots of, there's, there's, a, there's this pattern of sin. Then in verses 33 through um, 34, there's also a here in heaven. And this one relates to the, the, the consequences of disobedience to the curse. When your enemies defeat you and you go into exile, then here in heaven for your namesake. And then in verses 35 through uh, 36, verse 36 says here in heaven. This is another one of the, the, the curses that come. When there's no rain, there's drought because of sin. Then here in heaven and forgive, it tells us. And then in verses 37 through uh, 40, there's another, there's another say, here in heaven, verse 39. This is when plague or pestilence come due to the curses of, of sin and disobedience. And then in verses 41 through 43, this is when here in heaven, this one's a bit unique, but this is when a foreigner comes to the temple and says, I have heard of how great you are, God, how great the Lord is, and converts to the Lord. So they're leaving their idolatrous ways and hearing of God and coming for his name's sake. So sinners turning to the Lord. And then verses 44 through 45, here in heaven, when your people are attacked in battle from those who are against you, against your people, your enemies, here in heaven, and grant them victory. You can see this. There's a pattern here. There's a plea. Oh God, we need your help. We need forgiveness because of sin, the curses of sin. Now, let me read verses 46 through the end. And here you see a, the big picture of what's going on. And this is a, in particular, not just when people sin, but when they sin directly against God. Verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent of, with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven 
your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and to maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who are carried, who have carried them, who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you, wherever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. The seventh plea gives a good summary. Notice Solomon, he starts on his feet, And he ends on his knees. When we often think of prayer, we think of a prayer as a way that we connect with God. But sometimes prayer can make us realize the otherness of God and our own weakness and sinfulness. We contemplate his greatness. We consider his magnitude, how um, infinite he is and how finite we are. And we're humbled that he is holy in heaven and that we have evil, we're evil on earth, and we're humbled and we fall, he seems more distant and we must plead for help. So, let's ask this question again. How does this prayer of Solomon apply to us in our praying? And I want to give you, in this case, we give you one reason before. I want to give you two reasons, two ways, two important ways in which Solomon's prayer applies to our praying. And first, falling to plead identifies us with Jesus. I'm going to explain this. Falling to plead identifies us with Jesus. In, in verse 27, a question is asked. What is the question that's asked in verse 27? It says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? And this is a rhetorical question. The, the answer is no, because then he responds and says, The heavens and the heavens of heaven cannot contain God. But we know this. In the incarnation... That means that God became man. God did dwell on the earth. This was the great mystery that God, Jesus, came down, who is king, who is the son of David, and he came on the earth. Heaven could not contain him. The steadfast love of God came down and propelled him to the earth. He took on the finitude and the frailty of human existence. We have a king a divine king who came down. And this divine presence, the divine presence of his life, filled the temple of Jesus' body. But this king went even lower than that. He came down from heaven, but the king went even lower. This temple, his temple, fell. Near the end of Jesus' life, do you remember what happened? The last day before, he went to a garden. Remember that garden? He went to a garden and he prayed. We actually sang about it a bit in the, the, the song earlier. He there, he prayed. And Jesus prayed often, right? He's probably the only one that fulfilled Paul's command to pray unceasingly. But this time, his posture was unique. Let me read to you from a Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 42. Luke 22, 39 through 42. And Jesus came out. And went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. That's where the garden was. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation, speaking to his disciples. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. And he knelt down. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's the cup of suffering. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be in. Be done. This is the posture of Jesus the King. This, this is the one time, at least I can find, please fact check me, that you see Jesus kneel in prayer. That doesn't mean he never did kneel in prayer. This is the one time I see it recorded in scripture. God the Son entered into human experience and he knelt and prayed under the curse of sin. The curse that Adam took, the covenant curses that were in the law for disobedience, Deuteronomy 28, they were placed upon the king. Jesus was brought low and he pled, Oh, Father, let this cup pass from me, this cup of suffering. He pled under the weight of sin. Our king, he knelt and prayed. He knelt and prayed under the weight of sin. And as his disciples, we follow in his path. We can, as Christians, come boldly to the, to God as our father, but we always come with a posture, a posture like Jesus. The Son of God, the Son of David, is a model for our praying. When you pray and you feel the shame of this world, the shame of your past sins, the guilt of them, when you, when you, you think about the current ways in which you're sinning and failing against God, your temptations, your transgressions, and when you consider your future that you're going to sin again, let it humble you. Let it humble you and realize that you're identifying with the Savior who took on those same suffering and sin and who identifies with you. This week, um, I was um, getting pretty down about some things and I was beginning to like ask big questions um, like, man, I don't know if I can do what I'm called to do and I'm not, I don't know if I'm cut out for these things. And, and Ben um, came to me and he says, you know what? You, you, uh, you're acting like me. And, and, and he then came to me yesterday and said, you know, I'm sorry I said that I didn't want to apply something to you that, you know. And I said, no, 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 no. I was encouraged that, um, to see that, like, we're in these things together. We all have these, these, these sinful thoughts of not trusting the Lord, and our minds wander. And there was an identification that took place there. Jesus, the king, identifies with us in our weakness and in our praying. He can identify with you. When we pray, we often fall. When we consider how great God is and we can feel distant. But this is good because it identifies us with Jesus and how good he is to forgive us of our sins. So first, how this applies to our praying Falling to plead identifies us with Jesus. But secondly, secondly, the second way to apply this to our lives in prayer, falling to plead is effective because his name is on us. Falling to plead is effective because his name is on us. In the temple, there was an altar. An altar, in this case, the temple's altar is brand new. It's like they just, they just got this thing, they just bought it, you know, and they put it there. That's not true. They built it. There it was. And this is the place where they sacrificed animals upon. And why did they sacrifice animals? Because for payment for sin. It was a bloody place. It was a place of 
death. The wages of sin of death, and here's the altar. Now, what was Solomon standing by in each of these cases? We see it. He's standing right by the altar. We see that in verse 22 and verse 54. Both standing and then kneeling. And I think what this is telling us is when Solomon kneels by this altar, he's considering the, the death that takes place due to sin. If you look at verse 63, this is not in our text, but in the next maybe a few hours, it probably took multiple days, I'm guessing. Verse 63 says, Solomon offered as a peace offering to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. I'm not sure how long it takes to sacrifice that many animals, but right after this, death took place. The death that's about sin, that comes from sin. Jesus, he knelt and he prayed because he would soon be sacrificed upon the altar of the cross. The temple of his body was crucified. He was forsaken by God. He declared from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was distant because of sin. But in doing so, Jesus raised up a people to himself. Jesus did not die and, the, and remain in the grave. He rose again and he raised up a people to himself. Look again at verse 54. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar. Solomon stood again. And what did he do right afterwards? Well, 50, 55 says, and he blessed all the people. He arose after being humbled and, 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 and making a plea because of God's character and goodness to rising and blessing the people. Solomon knew the otherness of God, but he also knew the name of God. He knew that God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in spite of his sin, I mean, do you sometimes just think of your sin and your failings and there's just a weight on it? In spite of those sins, he had confidence in God to rescue. Why? Because he knows that God's name had been placed upon his people. Nine times in verses 27 through 54 is God's name referenced. Nine times. You've got a highlighter, you can go through and look at them. Verse 29, he says his name. Verse 33, verse 35, verse 41, verse 42, verse 43, it says it twice, his name. Verse 44, verse 48. God's name is upon his people, Israel. And then, in addition, Solomon, he closes this prayer by remembering the Exodus. You can see this in verse 51 and verse 53. He says, remember the Exodus, where God took his people out and he said, these are my people, they're my inheritance, verse 51 and verse 53. God's name is upon his people. Solomon can make this plea because he knows that God's name, his honor, his reputation is upon his people. So, the question for us is whose name is upon you? Whose name is upon our church? Jesus came down, and he offered his life upon the altar. But Jesus did not stay down. The temple of his body was resurrected. The king ascended to heaven... And he's brought blessing to his people. 
The temple of Solomon's day, it was destroyed. 586 BC. This was a monumental day. 586 BC, a monumental year. Had a monumental day. I don't know what the day was. Another temple was built. Uh, A second temple. That cloud of glory, we never saw it in that second temple. That temple too was destroyed. AD 70, it fell. But God's promises do not fail. The temple of Jesus' body arose. And that temple expands. When Jesus rose, the Bible tells us that his church rose with him. As Christ, so his people. Uh, Last week we had baptism. Into the water, symbolizing death. Out of the water, symbolizing resurrection. Death and new life. As Christ rose, we rise with him. And the New Testament tells us that the church, his people, are also a temple. Ephesians chapter 2. So that's confusing. How can it be that Jesus is a temple that raises and his people are a temple? Well, it's because of this union. As Jesus rose first, we rise with him. As Jesus is the temple, his people are his temple. They're indwelt with the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus, and they live inside him. And his people, as they multiply through the receiving the good news and, 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 and being filled with the spirit, converted to Jesus, the temple of, of, of our Lord the dwelling place of himself in his people expands throughout the world in men and women. The church, God's temple, has whose name upon it? Jesus' name on it. The church is the church of Jesus Christ. It's his church. God answers the prayers of his people who have been humbled for his name's sake. The name of Jesus, the name above all names, is upon his people. So if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, your humble prayers, you're fallen and then risen with him, for Christ's sake, he answers those prayers. And they're like, the Bible actually gives this picture of burning incense. They're a sweet aroma that ascends on high, that rises. Your prayers are heard for Christ's name's sake. You can count on it. It's for his reputation. It's for his honor. It's for his glory. Now, this is why Jesus taught his people to say, he said, pray in my name. It's not, when we say in Jesus' name, it's not a magical phrase, but it's a a symbol of saying you're united to him, united to his character, united to who he is, and for his glory, he answers prayer. Notice again, Psalm went from kneeling to standing to blessing others. Sin brought a curse. On Sinai, sin brought a curse. Christians, now under the new covenant in the blood of Jesus, can bring a blessing to others. This, God uses his people to be a blessing to the whole world. If you're a Christian, your prayers matter. They matter for your friends. They matter for your family, your church, missionaries, nations, as we pray for nations around the world, governments, your co-workers, your classmates, your prayers matter. The Christian, the sinner who is identified with Jesus has been brought low and lifted up, and you can bring a blessing through the prayers because Jesus' name is upon you. And Jesus reversed the curse and uses the prayers of his people to spread a blessing. Solomon, he could plead with God to forgive based on what God might do, Please do this, God. We 
have a better argument today. We can plead on behalf of what Christ has done. Sin has been paid for. The king is risen, and he has promised to resurrect all who are in him. Let me conclude with this. When I was uh, working at at Boeing, um, I had just graduated uh, with a master's degree in electrical engineering, and so I had some education. And I went to Boeing, and the first man I met was a man named Tom Henderson. I haven't seen Tom in a while, but he was a he was sharp. And being in his presence, it made you feel odd, but also a bit like, I, I, there's no way, I can't measure up to that. You felt in fear. But what was unique about Tom is he was a smart guy, creative, but he helped others who were around him and, and lifted them up. Standing in the presence of someone who's great, it's both praiseworthy but then it's, it's humbling. But it's even better when you're with one who is greater than you and they reach down and lift you up, help you to grow yourself. And Jesus, our king, came down. He kneeled down, but he lifts up. We can stand in him. We, we, we praise him in our prayer. We identify with his pleas that he made in our sinfulness. And then we can be a blessing to others because he raises us up. Let's use our prayers in that way. Let me pray and we'll sing well, and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we come to you and we are humbled. We acknowledge how great you are. We acknowledge our, our, our many, many weaknesses, our lack of trust. Um, Lord, I, I acknowledge um, just how I, I don't trust you and at times I, um, I your promises are there, but then I, I, I just forget them. So, Lord, increase our faith. Help us to trust in you, to believe your promises, your character. Thank you that you've put your name on us, the name of Jesus. Um, and we, we thank you that you'll complete the work in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.